Welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. Today I'm joined by Dr. Dan Krudka. Dan is an Associate Professor of Social Studies Education in the Department of Teacher Education and Administration at the University of North Texas. Dan and I discuss the purpose of education, the difference between a successful education and a great education, self-confidence, self-perception, the intersection of athletics and education, opportunity versus excellence, and the perception of student-athletes on college campuses. Dan is clearly an expert, but more importantly, he's kind, he's thoughtful, and I can't thank him enough for coming on the show and sharing his thoughts. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Dan Krudka. We're live. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Why don't we start by briefly introducing us to your work, your current post. How would you describe what you do for a living? Well, I'll, I'll start within the context of this podcast. I'm probably going to be one of the uh, worst athletes that you, ha- you have on. <laughs> I, I rode the bench a lot in high school, although my high school basketball team was pretty good. We uh, ended up uh, losing in the Final Four of the state tournament, Tulsa Memorial, go Chargers. But yeah, for this podcast, we're going to talk probably primarily about my my work in education. And it's interesting because, you know, we all have a lot of experience in education, which is always interesting as an education professor, because most professions you go into, people don't come in with 12 years of sitting in a classroom already. But I was a social studies education major and continued through, got a master's and doctorate. And so... I taught high school social studies for six years. Originally planned to be a coach. I was going to be a basketball coach. That was always, that was kind of the dream. I loved history. I loved basketball. I still love basketball, but my first job was they need an AP teacher, which kind of goes against the um, stereotype. Often think you can only get a social studies job if you coach. I actually got the opposite. I got one where they didn't need a coach and they needed an AP teacher to raise their test scores. And so I taught for six years high school and then ended up getting a doctorate and at the same time and I've been working in teacher education since then. So I pre- primarily, I, pre- I prepare teachers and in, in-service and pre-service teachers, teachers who are going into the field and then graduate students who are already teachers. But my area of specialty is really social studies education. And you teach teachers how to teach. Is that yeah. Raymond's term? Yeah, essentially. And I ask them questions like, what does it mean to teach? That's the types of questions we ask in education classes, right? Which is, I think a lot of times the implication is teaching means you're standing in front of a classroom, telling people stuff, telling people information. Uh, of course, I want to dispel them of that pretty quickly, right? But there's a lot of ways to teach. But sometimes it's just about asking the right questions, putting people in the right positions, taking them to the right places. So having them really think through what it looks like. I think one of the biggest challenges most people could recognize this with teaching is you've had a lot of experiences with it. And so you already know what you think it looks like. And so even if you have different views about it, it's easy to just do what happened to you, if that makes sense. And we all have had probably good and bad experiences in the classroom. The reason I wanted to have you on is certainly we want to talk all things education and start with a very broad brush and then let you give some specific examples. But then Another thing we've talked about offline is the intersection of athletics and education, specifically Mm -hmm. at the collegiate level. 
which I definitely want to get into and then maybe go through some case studies, pick your brain apart there on how you look at each of these from mm-hmm. a faculty point of view. So why don't we start as broad as possible? What is the purpose of education? And more than that, is there consensus among scholars? There's not a consensus, I don't think. And unfortunately, I even in education, sometimes I think it's easy for teachers and others to forget that question. What is the purpose of what we're doing? And education, I think, needs to have an end. So I'll, I'll give you an example of a possible answer, right? So in my field, social studies education, the primary framework, our national organization, the National Council for the Social Studies Developed, is called the C3 framework. And it focuses on three Cs, career, college, and citizenship. So the idea is that you're helping to prepare people for college. What are the things they need to do to be able to be successful in college? What do they need to do to be able to have a successful career? Everyone's also not going to college. And even if they are going to college, what are the things we'd want them to do? And then citizenship, right? Which is about um, I, citizenship broadly, right? Not just a citizen of a nation state, because we have a lot of students who actually, and their parents may not be citizens who are in our schools, um, but citizens of your community. When we talk about, I, I work also with elementary social studies teachers, and we talk a lot about citizens of your classroom is, is the place you start when you're young, right? What does it mean to be a citizen of a classroom? And so for me, that's actually the primary purpose of education. Historically, people like Thomas Jefferson, who argued that that we should have public schools, um, argued that that was the primary purpose is that schools should help prepare informed citizens for a democracy. Jefferson's colleagues disagreed and Virginia never actually passed any laws during that time period on that. And it took later movements to get public schools in states across the country. And so, yeah, it's it's a really important question. And I think it's it's the one we need to all answer. But unfortunately, I think with basically since the, the mid 80s, there, there's a big report that came out in education called The Nation at Risk. And it kind of said schools are terrible and they're going to cause the U.S. to lose the global war. Right. It's very Cold War era kind of document. And that came since the 80s that's come out. Really, we've had a shift to standards and testing. And so we've had a movement towards that. And so since that time, I think schools become very technocratic in the sense that it's a lot about getting students very specific knowledge and very specific skills. But I don't think that's the purpose of education. I don't think it should be, right? I think those are things that happen in education, but we have to have a bigger purpose for for why we do it. And I think what I talked about having informed citizens, to me, I would define in a multicultural democracy. That's the work we have to do, right? How do we prepare people to live and thrive and, and solve problems together and work on the hardest things in society to address the hardest things? thing I always tell my classes is if we cannot, in a classroom where we have the ability as teachers to create the community, to develop the norms, if we can't talk about difficult things in a classroom, I'm very worried about our society, like where we're going. Because in a classroom, you actually have the ability to talk with people about how should we treat each other, which is what I always think you should, before you don't start a discussion classroom to me, if you're a good teacher without first talking with your students about how should we do this discussion? How should we do discussions throughout this year? What does it mean to talk to each other? And so that's that's kind of a first step, usually. You said a lot there, so let me unpack it a bit. But towards the tail end, the idea of how to have disagreements is something I'm certainly interested in and something that I hope we learn how to do on this platform. And I did some research in advance. One of the definitions that I really loved was to train children how to think, but not mm-hmm. what to think. Sure which how to have disagreements to me fits that through line, how to create a person that can look at the world for themselves, 
how they can make their own decisions, but also how they can articulate whatever they come up with in a way that is inclusive, in a way that is progressive, meaning moving the conversation forward. And I certainly think, as you alluded to, we're not at a great place in society. We clearly have not been doing a very good job on teaching people how to make an argument that is going to change someone's mind. Yeah, and that's that's what we're trying to work on in the field. You know, a longer story of all of this is how do you get the research people who are working on this too into classrooms, which is a whole other problem, right? We really struggle with in our field is that we have great people who really thought deeply about what it means to have conversations about difficult topics. The term sometimes uses controversial public issues, right? How do you talk about controversial public issues in the classroom? And there's whole lines of research and people who've done it, but it is a challenge to get into classrooms, right? And like, think about how do you translate that and help teachers think about what it would look like in their classroom. I mean, I will, I will push back a little bit on one thing you said. I do agree what we need to do is teach kids how to think. Although I will say there are underlying values that I think schools should have, right? And so it doesn't, we, we don't start with a blank slate, right? For example, I talked about, I'll talk to my students about everyone should be able to have their dignity within our classroom, right? And so we always, I always think about that. And sometimes when I talk to my students, I talk about who, who are the most targeted or most vulnerable people in a discussion in a classroom and how do we, how are we thoughtful about that, right? How are we thoughtful about how that our own place in the world, our own position in the world impacts the way that, that others experience different issues? Cause some of us talk about issues we have almost no experience with. Other people live it every day. And that's a very big, there can be a very big experiential gap. And so one of the, things. And I guess actually this does come back to your point about teaching kids how to think is to recognize your experiences going into a conversation. And if your experiences are limited, one of the goal, one of the skills is to learn to listen and learn right from people who have more experiences than you. There's a lot of debate about what it looks like. I'll give you a couple pieces of advice that if people want to investigate it more or learn more. So deliberation is one of the terms that is often used is that we want to learn to teach students to be able to deliberate and have reasonable argument about issue. And I don't mean argument in like a combative way. There's a book called Metaphors We Live By where they start by talking about a lot of our discussions of our way we define discussion oftentimes is through like war metaphors, right? Like warlike metaphors. You stand your ground, you you take a position and you win or you lose. Where And they argued that what would it be like in society if our discussion was more like a dance, if we thought of dialogue or discussion as a dance? Now you're actually like you have partners and you're learning from and with them. And it's a lot of people don't approach discussions like that to learn from someone else and to listen. Uh, we approach them to win. Um, and I think that getting rid of that disposition um, is a hard thing to do in society. But in a classroom, you actually can do it fairly quickly if you talk about the purposes of discussion. So, yeah, so I think we can do it. I think good teachers do learn how to do it, but it's tough. It's tough. And I don't think our like media environment is helping any, right? I don't think social media helps. Tweeting in 280 characters is a hard place to have nuanced discussion. (laughs) So, well, let's double click on that for a minute. So, one of the things I would say is key is becoming a lifelong learner to be a philomath, if you will, someone who loves to learn, someone mm-hmm. who loves to read across array of subjects. As you mentioned, I don't know if we have a society that rewards that. We have a society that tends to reward simplification or generalization or 140 characters, as you mentioned. Are there ways in the classroom that we're actively trying to combat that and encourage students to actually enjoy complexity, to enjoy nuance, 
to enjoy a difference of opinion? Well, we should. So let's talk about learning, what learning is, right? And, and which is, I think, important to answering, like, how do you have lifelong learners? Uh, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a famous saying, right? Many children start schools as question marks and, the, and they end schools as periods. And unfortunately, schooling doesn't always help. And I think the way we've set up schools is sometimes problematic. There's, um, John Dewey is a famous educational philosopher and he has us, um, one of his books, he, he talks about this map metaphor and you kind of think about how hard it would be. Say you're a hundred years ago and you were trying to map an area. Think how difficult that would be, right? Like you probably, if you're doing it the first time, would have to actually travel in there. You'd have to go in the, in, you know, next to the river and through the valleys and see it all, right? And you'd try to map it over time. The problem in schools oftentimes is what happens is that instead of students doing that experience that it would take to, to make the map, oftentimes what we do is adults give them the map. So adults determine what the curriculum is, often from an adult perspective, and they hand it to kids. And it often doesn't make sense to kids, right? For Just think of all our subject areas, right? History is a made up adult concept. Kids are curious about how the world works and how to understand it. And by the way, I would argue adults are curious about those same things. Adults don't often, some people love history, some people don't. I think everyone's interested in questions about the world, though. We want to understand difficult things. If you ask a question, why is someone racist? Why do we have countries? Those are like kind of interesting questions just to investigate somewhat naturally. Schools sometimes get, I think we start by, instead of starting with those questions, we oftentimes give them too much, right? We often take too much and we've created this story and we say, learn these things as opposed to ask these questions. Well, as you mentioned to start this conversation, there is some non-negotiables. There are some mm -hmm. base levels of understanding that a child needs to become a productive citizen. Sure. Some of these things could be decency, compassion. Some of these things could be math sure. or reading. And I guess as someone in your, your position who determines curriculum, the million dollar question is which one's more important and when, right? And I would, I was about to say what I think, and now I don't know what I think, what's <laughs> more important, whether you start with the compassion and how to think or whether you start with base level skills. Maybe it's a combination of two. My initial inclination was say the higher you progress in your academic journey, the more complex issues like having conversations that are complex or difficult or you know, consequential. But now, in real time, I'm rethinking that. Maybe it, it needs to start from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Maybe that, that's why your job is so hard, I guess. Yeah. And Well, listen, I work with elementary majors, but I never taught a first day of kindergarten. You know what I mean? And that's there's there's rules involved. There's learning about how to be with others, right? It's the first, so for a lot of kids, it's the first time in a public space, right? Which is what's fascinating about school, right? Is that it's learning how to live with others in a public space. And this is, you know, literally a space that we've created because we've decided it's important, right? We pay tax money for public schools, which, you know, I believe in that, that larger purpose. But I, I think that, well, I think the good thing is, is that we have a lot of kids in school for a lot of time. They're there like eight hours a day. We have time to do both, right? Like we don't have to do either or. Well, at some level, you are going to be faced with the question, do I teach them to be kind or do I teach them math? Right. And yes, in theory, you can do both, but they're trade-offs. Yeah. And which, which is more important? Which am I going to dedicate more time and resources to is a really complex question. And yeah. I think it, it's already kind of bringing me full circle why professions like yours exist because they're not easy questions. Right. So 
you know, when you think of curriculum, I think sometimes people just think of the formal curriculum, the official curriculum, like what you plan to teach during the day, right? But in education, we also talk about other forms of curriculum, right? So we talk sometimes about the hidden curriculum, the things you teach that aren't intentional without saying, right? So that's like the way you run your classroom. You don't have to have a lesson on kindness necessarily to teach kindness, if that makes sense, right? It's the way the teacher talks to people. It's the way the teacher listens to students. It's the way they respect differences. All those things are can be part of a hidden curriculum. Also, by the way, when the teacher doesn't allow students to talk to each other or, or tell them to stand you know, in a straight kind of military line without talking in the hallways, right? You're sending messages about things. And sometimes schools can unfortunately start to look very much like prisons. There's a lot of carceral comparisons and what carceral education can look like when schools and prisons resemble each other too much. And then there's also the null curriculum, what we don't teach, right? So when, when teachers are scared to bring up a topic or ignore a topic, students notice those things. So the curriculum, you're, you are right. I mean, there's, there's always trade-offs and decisions about what the curriculum is. But curriculum by the, is in schools is complex because it's a lot of things throughout the day. I think I wish in education we did a better job of paying attention to just even how lunchtime is a learning experience. Like so often, I, I mean, in my school experience, we just were like let go in the lunchroom. I think there's lessons to be talked about about like during lunch, like you can learn about how we what decisions you make. And I just wish I, I wish that in my K-12 experience, I had more teachers that were intentional about thinking about all the questions that you could ask in a lunchroom and. So there's learning everywhere, right? My five-year-old starts kindergarten in about three months. In your opinion, how much time has her future teacher spent thinking about hidden education and null education? Is there much training on that front? (laughs) It's so hard for me to answer these questions because I know what I'm very, I'm so uh, involved in what we do in our program. And my colleagues do this, the colleagues I talk to across the country and in other countries, right, I think do a lot of this, right? For example, that that idea of the official hidden and null curriculum is pretty well known in education. I think a lot of a lot of, a lot of people in higher ed or teacher ed do it. How much do teachers think about it? I think the thing I tell my teacher candidates who are going into the classroom for the first time is I tell them, you know, we're, you're going to learn a lot of stuff in this program, but you better sit down and think about what you're going to do and be intentional about it because it's easy to get swallowed up by a school is what I always say, right? There's already a an emphasis that exists. And unfortunately, the problem that we often have in schools is that the pressure that's put on teachers and students is around testing. And so that's when that when you have a pressure, right, when you have something you have to complete or do, you move towards that. And oftentimes what happens is people lose their larger purpose. And my argument always is you can do both. You can maintain your purpose and still get people their test scores. That's what I tried to do as a teacher. But you better have an eye on your purpose or before you know it, you're just going to be going down the river of standardized testing, right? You will lose who you were as a teacher. And so many teachers lose it. When I ask them in their first teacher ed classes, why are you teaching? No one says to prepare students for tests. No one's, I've never had a teacher candidate say, I want to improve test scores. But when you ask teachers what their job is three years in, sometimes that's like the focus is test scores and looking at that data. And we can get really wrapped up and lose those larger purposes. But let me, let me come back to your question real quickly on the purpose of education. I'll say education is learning is social. It's largely about finding other people, not not always in person, sometimes about finding books, right, you love, but finding people you can learn alongside. And I think that's literally, think about our hobbies, right? We often look to schools to think about what learning is, but we all learn every single day. There's phrases sometimes people use like, all children can learn. I'm like, any species learns. Everyone learns all the time. It's just what we're learning and the direction of our learning, which is more important. And we also, by the way, sometimes learn in school that we hate things. That's, by the way, I would use the term miseducation. If a student gets a five on the AP test, 
but never wants to learn history again, I wouldn't say that was educational. And so really, I think what we need to think more broadly, if we want people to be lifelong learners, they have to find enjoyment in it and purpose in it. And it doesn't mean it has to be easy, right? Challenging people, like having disequilibrium is an important part of learning. You want sometimes for things not to make sense. That actually means you're learning. If everything always makes sense, you're not learning. And so things need to not make sense sometimes along the way. And so it's finding that appropriate balance. You don't want things to be too easy. You don't want them to be too hard. It's about, And that's what teachers should be able to do is help find those passions and interests. I would add that we need to teach students, people in general, to be comfortable with things not making sense, mm-hmm. to be comfortable being confused, to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that's a lesson. It is. I've been reading about the idea of the difference between a successful life and a great life. And that keeps swirling around in my head as I hear you speak is what we're talking about is the difference between a successful education, which is transactional math, science, getting a five on the social studies test, mm-hmm. whatever that means, and a great education. Mm-hmm. A great education is leaving also loving social studies and right. picking up a book and reading it in your 30s. That's what's swirling in my head. Let's change a bit. You're going to have to indulge me. This is a topic I'm super passionate about. Self-confidence. I believe self-confidence is something that was largely determinant of my path. I think it's so important. And the reason I think it's so important is I think it's a close cousin of belonging. One of the things I've said to the people that have worked for me and to young people is that as long as you put in the work, you belong in any room. Mm -hmm. And what I'm trying to convey to them is a sense of belonging, but also a sense of self-confidence. You belong in this room. Do we teach at the college Mm -hmm. level much about instilling self-confidence? Can we teach self-confidence? If so, how? I know this is a big question, but is this something that floats around in your circles? Are they as passionate about confidence as I am? I think these issues do come up in different ways. I'm not sure if self-confidence is a term people use, but I think it is present in many ways. I mean, one of my goals in education is to give people confidence to do the things that they are passionate about in the classroom, which is easier said than done. If you've ever watched someone try to teach their first lesson, which I've done a lot, it's a bumpy road. You have a lot of people imitating what their teachers did before, even though it's not what I taught them, right? (laughs) Like right after. And so I think a lot of that is is fi- also yeah finding your voice and finding why you're doing it and your angle. I always say for first year teachers, and this probably is advice maybe people could use in other aspects of life. You don't have to do everything right away, but do but figure out like one approach that that you want to learn well. Like say your first year in teaching, your first year in doing something, learn that approach really well. Learn that approach to whatever you're doing. And so for me, pick something that you can master over time and get better at. So. When I'm working, when I'm trying to develop self-confidence, I think there's a couple things. One is about is largely about identity, right? Learning is so much about how we see ourselves. And when students start to struggle in school, oftentimes their identity starts to stray from whatever the curriculum is. Teachers need to be able to identify that, right? I don't like math. I'm doing poorly in math. I'm getting bad scores in math. All of a sudden, if students have enough bad experiences in school or in life, they will start to reject that. No one wants to feel bad about themselves. So if you're continually getting Ds in a subject or Fs or whatever it is, You don't want to do that subject anymore. No one wants to fail continuously, right? You have to like have moments of breakthroughs and things go well. And so um, identity is so much a part of it. And so finding your identity, even if it it doesn't mean it has to be like your core identity, but like within a space, who are you? Who can you be in that space? And so you may not love social studies like I do, right? I always 
tell my colleagues, we are the ones that chose to make our whole careers this. We have to remember this. And we're teaching people who almost all did not choose to make this their careers. And so what we have to do is figure out how do they identify when they are going to teach social studies in front of the classroom? What is the way they're going to identify with it? They've got to do it. We can't give them the ways we fail about it. And so I think identifying with who you are and figuring out who you are is an important part of developing self-confidence, if that makes sense. Well, I think the topics are strangely linked. I certainly didn't intend this, but the idea of confidence, self-confidence, identity with the subject we spoke before about being comfortable being confused, Mm -hmm. reframing being confused. I talk to my daughter all the time about reframing struggle. If you're body's hurting because you're working out, it's growing. Reframe that. It's not yeah. struggling, it's growing. If your mind's hurting, we're, we're learning how to read. She's five years old. When she's struggling to sound out a word, I'm trying to reframe it in her mind mm-hmm. that that's not struggle, that's growth. Your mind's growing. Again, it's combining that uncomfortable with the struggle with the self-confidence to stick with it. Right. Because most things in life, you're going to fail at when you start. Sure. Let's change gears a bit and speak about the intersection of education and athletics, specifically at the collegiate level, since that's your expertise. What I want to do is I'm going to start by telling my story. I'll let you Mm -hmm. comment on that. Mm -hmm. And then we'll jump into some case studies that I want you to comment on. As a jumping off point, I attended Rice University on a baseball scholarship, Mm -hmm. which I don't think I'm being boastful to say that it's an elite university. And so coming into Rice, I certainly took my education seriously. I was borderline all A student in high school, but I went to a public high school, lower middle income, and I quickly learned that my preparation was not what my peers were. Luckily, I had developed that self-confidence, that sense of belonging Mm -hmm. that I still felt like I could compete. But there were certainly some self-doubt and insecurities. And one of the things I ran into that I didn't expect at Rice is that some of the faculty were vocally opposed to athletes coming in at lower test scores. One professor in particular actually approached me on the first day of class and said, athletes don't do well in my class, not Mm -hmm. so subtly inferring you should maybe choose a different class which certainly highlighted some of those doubts and insecurities. But in my case, it also highlighted some competitive streak. Well, this athlete is asshole, right? But (laughs) I do realize that not everyone's going to feel that same way. And so before I let you comment, I want to make sure I point out, I don't want to demonize that professor or even that school of thought because a lot of me understands it to this day. Rice University is one of the most elite universities in the world. Many of my peers in athletics earned that reputation Mm -hmm. and did not compete in the classroom and probably took away from some of the other educational opportunities of others in the classroom. And even myself, although I made really good grades, I wouldn't have got into Rice without an athletic scholarship. So the point I'm trying to make is that the issue is complex. Speak a little bit from your perspective on faculty's perception of student athletes, specifically at elite universities. Well, coming from a K-12 teacher background, I approach education probably differently than a lot of professors, right? Like I could never imagine 
saying something like that to a student because I'm literally hired to teach. Like, that's my job. You ever once in a while see professors who first day of class, they'll say, this class is really hard. Only this many people get A's in this class. And I always tell my students, it sounds like what they're really saying is, I don't know how to teach you well, so good luck this semester because I don't know how to support you as a learner. Um, that's what I hear as, a, as someone in teacher education. I, you know, I do think it's important, by the way, uh, one of the things I tell teachers is it is important to set high expectations in your classroom. You can always pull back, right? Like, and I don't mean about expectations, but like you want people to take your class seriously, right? You don't want someone to walk out of your class, whether it's kindergarten or senior year of college, the first day and think it's a blow off that they're not going to, you're not going to challenge them. So you do want to, I always do. It's one of my mentor at, at the University of Oklahoma, who I had my undergrad master's in and uh, PhD program uh, was a great educator and he scared the crap out of me every semester. And it's like, I took him like 12 times for classes because over the years and he still, he still terrified me a bit, but you know what, you know, which class I always was like really sure I stayed up late and read for was his class. He pushed me because, you know, he set high expectations. So I think that is important, but I think for students coming into the class, you know, he really had a single story about athletes that I think isn't really helpful. It's, I guess it motivated you. It worked in your case, but I don't really know what the purpose was of that. So I'm not, you know, I'm not demonizing the professor, but I just don't think that was a great pedagogical strategy. And so I, you know, in education, to me, I just am such a big believer that opportunity is, is more important than the, the pedigree of students, right? And, and what people, what students who, who are good at school have had oftentimes is a lot of experiences in school, right? They're good at doing schoolwork. And so some people who struggle in school haven't had those same opportunities. And there's actually a lot of evidence that students who are given opportunities they didn't have earlier make up a lot of ground real quick academically when when supported. And so I think supporting students at the college level is really, really important. But then also for the teachers at the college, it starts to get a little different when you get into higher ed and you get into more specialized areas, right? Like once you start getting into areas that are going to become people's careers, I think education shifts a bit from a general education that's meant for everyone, right? I think in general education, it's really important to ask broad, curious questions about society. But when you get into a specific field, you start to work in specialized knowledge areas. And so there's a little bit of a shift there. I think too many professors don't think about, for example, in your case, um, I don't know what this, was this class a class that, that gen ed people took? Was it for your major? I won't even comment on what class it was, but I will say there was a general perception from a number of faculty members mm-hmm. that having athletes in my class is not a great thing right. that didn't maybe earn the right to be here. You mentioned opportunity. What I was thinking about is opportunity versus excellence. Mm-hmm. So I certainly don't think I would come in and say something like that to a student. Yeah. Yet on the other hand, there is a place for unreasonably high expectations sure. and standards, unnegotiable standards yep. and excellence that should not be sacrificed. Right. Now, as I've grown older, as I've moved into the workforce, as I've led a company, I certainly understand that intelligence is domain specific and some of the most intelligent people I know are big dummies in huge areas of life. Absolutely. And maybe other students can bring that form of intelligence 
into the classroom. Right, right. Diversity. Diversity of thought, diversity of opinion, diversity of experience. In passion, right? I think we underplay what it means to be passionate, Ooh. right? Like if you're passionate or curious about something, you continue to pursue, which is one of the most important things. And so, yeah, listen, I don't want to lower standards, especially, right, for medical school, right? I want my doctors to be <laughs> really well prepared. And so I think it, it's always about thinking about what standards are for, right? What purposes they serve. I think sometimes we have standards that don't serve good purposes. And then other times we have goals. And I like to, I like to use the term goals instead in education. There's a lot of terms like objectives, standards, things like that. I think they're not always helpful. Even the concept of intelligence, I, I don't think is always helpful. I mean, a lot of, you listen, a lot of our stuff in our history has racist backgrounds, but the very concept of intelligence is, is super racist backgrounds and IQ tests do too. And I've not found them that helpful all the time in general education. But yeah, as you get into, it's, it's okay to, for, for professors to have really high expectations. I think people know those professors and I think their classes are oftentimes really, really good. But once someone walks into your class, I think it's about how to support them. And the, the stereotype about athletes is experiential. Some athletes have unfortunately gotten what I would consider mis- a miseducation along the way because they excel in athletics, right? People want them to pass classes, not because education is important, but because they want to make sure they stay on the field, right? they stay on the court. And, um, and so we sometimes do a disservice. And this sometimes goes back to K-12. And unfortunately, in my personal opinion, and this is somebody who wanted to be a coach, right? We have a problem that we have coaching tied to teaching in schools. And that causes a problem for a lot of athletes going forward because some coaches don't want to be teachers. And in other countries, if you know, like a lot of European countries, for example, they have club sports. So you have teachers in school and you have your coaches at your club sports. Well, we have our teachers slash coaches. And let me tell you, I had I worked with great coach teachers, right? Who cared about teaching, who were good at teaching. But I also worked with coaches who were just like they were the quarterbacks in high school and they wanted to be the quarterbacks of teachers, right? Like they kept that in. And I had I saw coaches literally haze young coaches who were trying to be good teachers and make fun of them. I saw it. It's, it was embarrassing. And so the problem is, is those are who some young athletes are around, are people who care about the coaching but don't see value in education. And I suspect they may have had the same experiences in their own life, right? Like they may have had coaches who didn't care about the education side, who weren't passionate about that. And that really is a disservice because what happens is sometimes you get athletes who get to college and they haven't had people who are passionate about thinking about education. And so their identity is about being an athlete. They, they see themselves as an athlete. They sometimes see school as just hoops you jump through. And by the way, a lot of all students from different areas see that, that school is about credentialing, about you know getting in degrees so you can go really do the thing you want to do in the world. But I think athletes can be put at a disadvantage when the, the student athlete side, when, when there's not an emphasis on the student side of that and, and letting them develop a curiosity about what they're doing. And so we, we just, it's a disservice. And so to me as a professor, I, I, I'm guessing that that professor had bad experiences with athletes in their class. But unfortunately, that's a, oftentimes accumulated from bad learning experiences, bad teaching experiences. Well, I love what you said. Once they're in your classroom, mm-hmm. we're past all that. Yep. Once they're in your classroom, it's an opportunity to support that student. Right. Which I totally agree with, but I also want to play devil's advocate and say, well, once they're in my classroom, 
What if they're taking away from the learning of the other students? What if they're putting an undue workload on me? And let's get into that in some case studies. So the first athlete is a student athlete coming in with poor preparation, yet they have the ability to thrive with additional help and have the interest to thrive with additional help. So let's focus on that case study. That seems to me the type of student that you can bring in, give a little extra time to, and they're going to add a whole new perspective to your classroom. Absolutely. How would a teacher deal with that while also dealing with the additional burden of having to bring the student along? Well, the first thing I would say is actually I wouldn't f- talk about reframing. I would never frame it as a burden, right? I would see it as an opportunity. I always see, Great a, point. I always Great see point. students as, as bringing opportunities into the classroom. And you know, hey, we're not going to get into probably the structural issues of how education is set up. But I will say the thing I often, when we think about like what are good schools and bad schools, that all needs to be reframed. I often, one of the most useful terms I use is over-resourced and under-resourced schools. So there's all these structural issues. So I don't want to bypass that. I know that's not the purpose of this podcast. But there's so much to learn there and we need to question. And so I feel like this is my a different audience. I get to, if I can get on a soapbox for just a second and say, rethink a lot of those assumptions about schools. Point taken for sure. And we'll have you back on to discuss that. I know, right? Well, yeah. let's compare. <laughs> what I'm trying to do is get into the professor's head who has maybe a student like the one I described who has a lot of mm-hmm. potential mm-hmm. and who has a willingness to learn. Let's compare that athlete with one that has no interest in being there. When you're in that position and you're having to determine, as you put it, the opportunity. Well, what if the opportunity is a kid who's not all that interested? Do you uh, sympathize with the professor in that case? I'm trying to put myself in their shoes and say, maybe they have a point. Maybe they've had some experiences. Is it still an opportunity? Maybe yeah. so. Maybe the opportunity just changed a bit. But then again, it seems to me you're asking a lot of the professor if yeah. they're there to teach advanced calculus or whatever right. it may be. And we're telling them you need to spend additional time right. on this opportunity, as you phrased it, which I think is great phrasing. Right. Here, here's what I would say. Here's my advice to especially the professors out there, right, is or the people in education is you should plan that some students in your class are going to struggle more than others. And so I would say part of being a good teacher is to think about, okay, so how am I going to support the students who struggle this semester? Whether it's adding additional office hours, whether it's also just like grouping people, having grouping opportunities in classes. By the way, the big part of teaching isn't you don't have to teach everything, right? One of the best ways to be a great teacher, I think, is to pair people up. And right, so being really thoughtful about why and who you pair up. Can I put students together with different skills? different approaches to this classroom that could actually help each other learn in different ways. But for the student that's struggling, hopefully you can find an inroad to like, why would they care about this subject in class? You, you want to try to make that um, and you want to provide academic supports for them to succeed. But I'd tell, I absolutely would never lower my expectations for any student, right? I feel like too many, I think we cheat any student who we don't get the most out of them in a classroom. But, you know, students don't always see it like that. And it's important to understand they come in, some students, especially you know, whether they have a pro career coming, I think a lot of people in their minds, they have a pro career coming, whether they do or not. Of course, it's if you're a good athlete, you want to you always have to believe you can have a pro career coming, right? That's part of being competitive. But if they believe that they that's their oftentimes their end goal. And it's it makes sense that that's what their life is centered around, right? Not only are there all the reward structures in their life been around that, um, not just rewards in school and things like that, but probably in their personal life, 
And in the identity development, they've, they've developed their identity oftentimes around being an athlete. And so, like I said, I mean, I think part of it is seeing how can they, how can they form their identity in their classroom? Even just taking a little bit of time to work on that. And then listening to them, I think reaching out and listening to students and their experiences. I think if you can do anything as a professor and as a student, it's that, um, it's try to connect the experiences together you've had in the past with what's happening in this classroom, right? So even if it's a, stu- a student athlete who comes in who's struggling in the class, I think one of the best things you can do is, is, is explain in my past classes and in my school experiences, I always struggled with this, right? So you're saying it, right? You're getting out like what the problem has been. And here's why I'm, I feel like I'm struggling in this class. Your lectures are moving too fast. The assignments don't make sense. The reading is really dry and I struggle to concentrate during it, whatever it is. By the way, these are problems that on some degree, many students have. Some students are really good at school, right? You have students sitting in the class that are, have been their identity formation has been around athletics. You also have students in their class, their identity formation has been around academics, right? And so those students are then together in the same classroom. So that can be work to your advantage or disadvantage in the way I think you, you approach it. Um, and that's why I would say that having students work together sometimes can be one of the best things you can do. One of my takeaways, my lessons from listening to you is the power of reframing. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think that's such a powerful lesson is because it's not just a lesson in the classroom, it's a lesson in life. Mm-hmm. One mm-hmm. of the things I've told young student athletes is you don't have to be smart to be a good student. Mm-hmm. You can do things like go to office hours. We would sometimes miss two weeks at a time, but I would never miss an office hour for a number of reasons. Number one, you're going to get one-on-one attention. Most of the time, I was the only one there. Right. Number two, you're going to endear yourself to that professor as someone who cares. You're going to reframe their perception as someone who is a learner, as you put it, someone who cares. There's so many benefits that can come from that. But listen, the students that come and spend extra time and talk to you about things, there's no way of separating that from the way you think about their success in the class. You're invested in them in a different way. And so, yeah, I, I tell my students all the time, go we literally, they, they sometimes apologize for coming to like office hours. I'm like, this is my job. They pay me to teach you and to support you, right? Like that's, that's why we have to have office hours. It's built in as almost all institutions have that as a requirement. But, but yeah, go talk to your, your instructor, your professor, develop a relationship. I mean, education is relational. That's important, right? It always is, I think. Um, but it's also context is the other thing I'll emphasize, right? I think you emphasize reframing. Um, context is so much of education tends to be decontextualized. What I mean by that is, is we don't know why we're learning something. We don't understand it. And so sitting with the professor can be really helpful. If I could say anything again to educators, and this is, by the way, you can do this work yourself as a student or a learner. I wish we learn, I'm a social studies person, but I wish every subject we learn the history of the subject. Because if you look at the history of any subject, calculus, algebra, astronomy, biology, it's filled with people trying to figure things out and making errors and trying to figure things out and making errors. And like that's what learning has been historic, both in our, in our immediate lives. But that's the history of learning is that people thought the earth was the center of the universe. Then they realized it wasn't. And some people were persecuted because they put that idea forward, right? Like the history of learning is kind of embodies also what our individual learning experience. We struggle to understand different things. Sometimes we, we, we have um, beliefs that are different from most people around us or, or different from what other people think in society and how we ne- negotiate those things are similar. So yeah, I think absolutely spend time, go to office hours. I can't, I can't emphasize that enough. Develop relationships 
most people want to know that listen, hey, some people, there's jerks in the world and some of them are professors, unfortunately. So sometimes the, that can bump into it, but let's, I'll give people the benefit of the doubt that you can kind of relate. I think most teachers do. Um, some teachers can get caught up in their own subject matter in a way, you know, that, that can make, make students feel alienated. But I think some of that crumbles away sometimes when the student comes in front of them and says, I'm trying, but I'm struggling, right? When most people hear that and they hear that vulnerability, they really do want to usually help you. Which that's another thing athletes struggle with or mm-hmm. elite performers from any domain sure. is telling someone you're struggling, yes. telling someone you're having trouble. If we can encourage more young people, more people in general to speak honestly yeah. about their struggles, about their setbacks, because everyone has them. That's the through theme on this platform. Mental, physical giants, the outliers among us, if you will, they struggle. It's mm-hmm. part of their journey. And I think we put this perception that they don't, which causes others to believe they're not normal or their feelings yeah. of insecurity or vulnerability or anxiety are not normal. Well, they're completely normal. Yes. We all have them. Continue to move forward. Right. Speak about them. Figure out a way to get past it because hopefully you hear guys like, Dr. Dan Krutka say, no, <laughs> you know, I have my doctorate in education, but I still have insecurity. I still time. have struggles. Yeah. I think framing it that way will hopefully inspire others to, to continue. I was just working on a project with a scholar from Canada and I told her, I was like, I was reading your work and we're thinking about working on this project together. And like, I'm struggling to figure out what I'm going to add. You, you're such a great writer, such a great thinker. And I think what she expressed back to me is, you know, no, of course, I want to work with you because of all of these reasons. But, you know, it's a, it's a big thing for a lot of people get their PhDs. They have imposter syndrome at the PhD level, right? They get a doctorate and, but they feel like, am I really the one who's, am I knowledgeable enough to do this? And it's the same experience people have when they get on social media and they look at other people's lives and they see the pictures and the life looks perfect. Yeah, we, de- we need to de- destigmatize vulnerability and, and especially around issues like mental health. And I think young men, there's no question young male athletes, they are particularly struggle with that, right? With, with being vulnerable and saying I'm depressed, saying I, I feel dumb. I feel like I'm not smart enough to do this class. To say things like that, to say how you feel is so important because that's part of your identity, right? You're forming and we all have ups and downs and I, I can't tell you enough. I've been teaching for 15 years and some days I leave the classroom like, man, that lesson went awesome. And some days I'm like, have I not learned anything? Right? Like, how am I making this mistake? And, and I think that you're exactly right. Everyone struggles. You know, we all have to help each other, I guess is what I would say. And I, well, Dan, I think that's a good place to, to leave it. Glad to know we've got some role models in higher education like yourself. So thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.